Uh, please remain st- standing while I read the passage uh, from the Bible, which is taken from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, and chapter 66, verses 22 to 24. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it in the sound, in the sound, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Chapter, chapter 66, verse, oh, sorry, uh, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and thus shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now chapter 66, verses 22 to 24. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From the new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Please be seated. May the Lord add the, rich, uh, the riches of his blessing as we read and obey his word. And we do pray that the spirit may engraft his word into our hearts. Now friends, in the last three sermons... We have seen the amazing uh, tapestry of God's plan as revealed in his word. You may see it on the next slide. Uh, Four simple words, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So in creation, we see the goodness of God's creation and God's design. The Bible begins with a worldview that assumes not just God's existence, in the beginning God created heaven and the earth, but who God is, as we recite earlier in the Creed, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, just uh, as a side note, heaven and earth, here is a shorthand for the whole universe. Now, if you look at the, the, the next slide, that's the observable universe. It, it is currently measured 93 billion, billion light years across. Now, one light year equals to 9.4 trillion kilometers. So you do the math, how big the observable universe is. Now, God created and is in charge of the whole show from end to end. So creation is not just amazingly big, but also breathtakingly beautiful. You can just look up on Google image, beautiful creation, amazing creation. You can see it. Okay, you've probably been to some of these places. Not to mention our growing and advancement of technology should actually point us not to big 
tech companies out there, but to the God who made every single human with the potential to harness his good creation to make life a little bit better. God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, in his image as his representative to rule over creation. Again, friends, to a certain degree, we can see today what humans have made and we have enjoyed them. Food, cities, roads, smartphones, entertainment, sports, education, government, the beauty of creation. However, and this brings us to the fall, our first parents decided to rebel against God by taking his place. They reject God's rule. They reject God's loving guidance. So what is originally a state of peace between God and mankind has now fractured. That fractured, also called the fall, also spread between mankind, between people, and mankind against nature. If you look on the next slide, we now live in a world that knows evil, suffering, pain, death. Whether it's evil coming from other people or the ones that, come, that are coming from us, we are no longer living in peace. We live in a state of constant discord, lack, of, lack or absence of harmony, love, life. The best food we eat gets rotten, and for every Instagrammable holiday photos, we know that behind the scenes there's argument, bickering, and tears that we simply edited out. It turns out, taking God's place, thinking that we know better than God, thinking that we can call the shots, bring us more untold misery and pain. And last week, we looked at redemption. That's the big B-U-T, but God is still God, and he, not Satan, not sin, not suffering, not even death, he will have the final say. Thank God for that. God doesn't leave us alone. Out of his great love, he started a great plan. In fact, this plan began in eternity past, past beyond our imagination. And technically, the word is redemption. And as we saw last week, although we deserve to suffer and to be punished for our sins, God took our place. God took our place in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He did this over many centuries, promising this redemption, by the way, the work of redemption. That's why it's often called redemptive history, especially in the lives of his people, Israel, showing not just what kind of God he is, but also what kind of salvation he has planned. Now, the prophet Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Jesus, so around 2,700 years ago, was one of the many messengers whom God tasked to bring this salvation message. We saw last week, didn't we, from Isaiah chapter 52 to 53, how in vivid details, Isaiah described how Jesus, God's faithful servant, God's Messiah, would suffer on our behalf. He took our place. He suffered what we deserve so that those who believe in him might enjoy what he deserved. Friends, you know, at one time it was recorded that the foreign exchange, which is larger than the stock market, worldwide moved around $6.6 trillion. This was in 2019. <laughs> That's a lot of money. 
But that exchange on a daily basis, it pales, it is small, it is nothing in comparison to the greatest exchange ever, which is our collective sin, our sin bunched up together, exchanged with Jesus' holy, perfect, and absolute righteousness. It is the main reason why followers of Jesus can say, as we, uh, it, uh, like Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. However, the, f- the story doesn't stop there. In fact, as I mentioned last week, we still see sin, evil, and suffering all around us, don't we? Even before the age of TV, internet, and social media, back around 57 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's the same creation. The same creation you and I live in, it's groaning. The whole universe, over 93 billion light years across, groaning in pains. That means God has a far bigger plan than simply making peace with sinful humanity. Ultimately, His plan is to bring this peace, not just worldwide, but galactic-wide. Not a single atom in the whole created universe will be left untouched by God's act of renewal. And this future act of God is what we call new creation or consummation, which basically means state of perfection. So on the one hand, he has fulfilled and completed his work through Jesus Christ, through his coming, through his death, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to heaven. That's done. But on the other hand, he is about to do so much more. As we confess in the creed, Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and then from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's yet to happen. Or as we're going to see later after the sermon, majesty will sing with creation. When you come, again in the clouds, every knee will bow down, every knee will worship the one true God. Again, that's not happened yet. So in the new creation, we are given a breathtaking picture of God's plan to bring the whole creation into perfection. Now, this is the true, ultimate, and final peace. And the Hebrew word for it, most of you know the Hebrew word for this peace is shalom. Now, this is not just Christian or Hebrew greeting. It's a bit, actually kind of, it's a bit like saying, what's up, how are you doing? Okay, but the word shalom itself very rich, has a very rich meaning. It means peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility, peace that is multidimensional, a peace between God and mankind, mankind and each other, and mankind with nature. In fact, it's a whole universe kind of peace. It is actually the kind of peace that many religions, philosophies, technology or medical advancement, government and so on, even entertainment are seeking to give us but can never do. 
The shalom of the Bible is deeply connected to what we've already seen in the last three weeks. It's deeply connected to creation, to fall, and redemption. Friends, God is not just going to give peace for peace's sake. It is always peace with God through Jesus Christ. So it's not never just absence of trouble or issues or conflict. It's always peace with God through Jesus Christ. So to say that all religion is basically the same because they all teach peace and harmonious living is patently a false argument. I mean, if you ask people who really, really, really know their religion, not, not just on the surface, whether they are Muslim, Hindu, Buddha, indigenous religion, folk religion, you ask them. Or for some of you, just remember what you used to believe before you come to know Jesus. Uh, look at uh, the next slide. Ask this following question. When it comes to creation, who is God? Where do we come from? What is humanity? In relation to the fall, what is wrong with the world? Why there's no ultimate peace? In relation to redemption, how can the world be made right? How can mankind have peace with God? Or what we're about to see today, new creation, what is the end of history if there is one? Is there life after death? Trust me. <laughs> they will give a totally different, even contradictory answer. So how can you say all religions is basically the same because they all teach peace and harmonious living? It's, it's, like saying, it's like saying all Asians are the same because they all have black hair, which is not just an insult to all Asians, but to all humanity. So that brings us today to the passage, which is actually going to be from Isaiah 65 to 66, but let's... Have a look at these verses. Now, Isaiah is a massive book. It's a huge book consisting of 66 chapters. Um, Alan Harmon, one of the Old Testament lecturers at uh, the school I used to go, divides this book into two major uh, divisions. So Isaiah 1 to 39, he, he calls it the book of judgment. This is where Isaiah, the prophet, condemns the sins of the world the sins of the nation surrounding Israel, as well as the sins of God's own people. Israelites have lost their way through generations of idolatry and sin, and God will do what he has said. That is, he will kick them out of their land. He will take them out of their promised land and send them into exile to their worst enemies, the worst enemies at the time, which was the Babylonians. So this is basically set in stone. Israel has passed the point of no return. That's why 1 to 39 is the book of judgment. Thank God the story doesn't end there. Isaiah 40 to 66 is called the book of comfort because it is filled, at least majority, with a series of promises. That is, that Israel, although they are being exiled, will be one day restored back to their land. But as always, God has bigger plan. It's not just about restoring Israel back to the promised land, which in and of itself is quite a massive undertaking, but also restoring the whole world back to himself. Actually, if you remember, the chapters that we talked about last week, 52 to 53, is part of the second book. 
And this book of comfort, this worldwide peace and comfort is done and will only be done through a person, the Messiah, who is also called the faithful servant. The servant who ultimately took not just Israel, Israel, but the whole sinful humanity's place. The servant who suffered and died on their place. As we sang earlier, you take our failure. You take our weakness. Why? So we can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So Isaiah 65 to 66, the last two chapters of this epic book, shows us what God is like and what he's doing. He's basically responding to Isaiah's prayer. It's not on the slide, but if you look on Isaiah 64, Isaiah um, cry out a prayer to God. He says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quite quake at your presence. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. So what is the end of history? Is there life after death? What is God going to do in the future when Christ returns? So if you look on the next slide, that's probably, the, uh, I think that's a big idea for today's sermon. So new creation basically means God is going to complete, to finalize his work of transformation, separation, and salvation. So look at, let's look at these three things. Transformation, separation, and salvation. First of all, God will transform the whole creation. So that's uh, chapter 65. So in this, um, in this section, chapter 65, starting verse 17, Isaiah foretells a new heaven and new earth where evil, sorrow, tears will be replaced with joy and rejoicing. There is a world to come where there is no curse of sin and that the whole nature will exist in harmony not just again, but permanently and increasingly better. Let's look at those verses, uh, verses 17 to 18. Okay. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. By the way, guys, that word create in the Bible, it's, 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 it's not like the word we use. He create, for example, a craft or a movie or a system of government. This word in the Old Testament is exclusively used only for God. Isaiah here uses picture language to describe not geographical Jerusalem, not the city Jerusalem in the Middle East, but new creation. And this new creation, guys, will be so new, so different that what is old or what we call present today won't be remembered or it won't trouble our hearts. Our present world will be like a long forgotten dreams to us. Let's look at the next verses, 19 to 20. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner hundred years old shall be accursed. 
So we have here again in picture language. So this is not take, uh, saying that if you in the new heaven on earth, you, you, um, your maximum age will be 100 years old. That's not really the point. Again, it's a poetic language. But here is a picture of absolute calm and peace as well as immortality, right? Sickness, death, dying, things that we are so familiar with today will no longer be part of this reality. Now, this week I attended two funerals. On Monday, as I mentioned earlier in the prayer, one of our elders, Jim Nasky, 83 years old, whose health had been in decline the past year. And on Wednesday, uh, the funeral of one Lachlan Hood, a son of my former lecturer. He was only 26 years old. Friends, whether due to old age or sudden death, as in the case of the younger person, death intrudes our peace. Death is painful. But in God's new sinless creation, there will be no more death. Let's look at the next few verses, 21 to 23. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. So here we have, for example, three, a picture of endlessness. And note also that the new creation is not going to be boring, guys. It will be filled with activity, filled with work, filled with building, filled with creativity. So if you can get a glimpse of the present creation bursting with its goodness, the new creation is going to be so much more. Verses 24 to 25, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now notice this. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. New creation again is about changing, transforming. The whole cosmos, the whole animal kingdom will be at peace. You can say that the Bible begins in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and ends with, in the end, God transformed the heaven and the earth into new heaven and new earth. A perfect ending. If you've read uh, Narnia, the um, seven, all seven book of it, the last, the final book is called The Last Battle. And... I believe I'm not spoiling the ending when you, you find out in the last battle, Aslan, that, that is the good guy's win, just like in the Bible. And in the last chapter, Lewis writes this, talk, talking about Aslan. And as he, that is Aslan, who is uh, a picture of Jesus in the Narnia books, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. 
and we can most truly say that they all live happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their lives in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, only in Jesus you and I can have a truly happily ever after. So what do you think about your future? Now I'm not saying that Christians must not plan or think about their future, but is what you are spending time searching and seeking and pursuing now worth compared to the glory that God is about to show us in the new heaven and earth? What do you compare your future with? Your former classmate? Your other or that other family member? What do you think about God? Knowing that he's trustworthy and good, how is the promise, the reality of the coming new creation compared to what you are often worried about today? Do you live as if this creation is your only hope? I really like the way C.S. Lewis described the old present creation. He describes it only as cover and title page. The new chapter, the new, the final life is yet to come. So that's the first point. God will transform new creation. The bad news is this new creation is not for, for everyone. And this idea is repeated many times, not just in Isaiah, but in many parts of the Bible. So the second point is God will separate those who rebel. Friends, today, as in the days of Isaiah, we have those who seem to be doing good or seem to be religious or seem to be Christian, if I may put it that way, but are actually evil. These people are pretenders of religion. And their end is clear. Let's look at verse 24. This is the last verse in the book of Isaiah, by the way. The very last verse. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Me is talking about God. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence of all flesh. Which FYI, Jesus uses the last word, sentence of Isaiah to describe the reality of hell. Eternal separation from God. As I mentioned, these people have been described many times in Isaiah, but the closest place where they described there actually is in the same chapter, chapter 66, verses 3 and 4. I think it should be on the slide. It's a bit long, but let me read these verses. Look at this. He that, he's talking about those who rebel, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. So if you notice in verse 3, is uh, something that looks to be very good. In fact, something that God commands, slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, presenting a grain offering, making a memorial offering, 
And yet at the same time, this wonderful and goodness that God commands is done in such a wrong way, with such a wrong motive that from God's point of view, it's no different to those who kill a man, break a dog's neck, offering pig's blood, and blessing an idol. That's why he says, these have chosen, notice this, their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. God calls it abomination, something that God feels very yucky or icky about, to put it in today's language. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in their eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Guys, this is basically the fall, Genesis 3, all over again, but transposed over many generations. Pride, thinking that no, they know better than God. They also mock true believers. They make fun of them. Look at verse 5. The next slide should be there. Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word. So those who tremble at his word, we're going to see in the next point. True believers. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. These guys, these people are the proud of our age. Praising human gods, flaunting their rebellion. Outwardly, they appear faithful and religious, but inwardly, they are filled with sin and corruption. There's a book that I came across recently. Um, should be on the next slide. Uh, written by Tara Isabella Burton. The title is Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from the Vinci to the Kardashians. <laughs> I'm just going to quote. She's basically talking about a secularized society who has been moored away from the reality of um, uh, basic Western values where human beings have assumed God-like power and responsibilities. And I quote from the book, we are creators of ourselves, of our lives, of world around us. We take on the divine role of constructing and shaping reality. That's where we are today, isn't it? Look at us floating around in the heaven and hell of cyberspace, feeling omniscient, all-powerful with our search engines and gathering of quote-unquote followers. God will separate those who rebel. Friends, are you proud? In case you think I'm pretty humble, let me ask you a few questions. Are you paralyzed by fear and anxiety instead of humbly rest in God's care? Do you feel entitled to a point that you become bitter, frustrated, disturbed, instead of realizing that we don't deserve the least of God's kindness to us? Do we think we have the right to be unthankful so we keep complaining? Or do we live constantly as people pleaser, not because we want to serve them, but because we are actually serving ourselves? Have we neglected prayer because we think we don't need to submit to God or we think we can do it or that God just can't be bothered? He doesn't care. Are we living a double life, thinking that we are better than everyone else? Good at finding fault with others, but terrible at confessing our own fault, our own sin. Do we consciously rebel against God's word 
and those whom God has put over as our leaders who look after our souls. Well, that's the bad news. But thanks God, there is hope. Final point, God will save those who tremble. So transformation, separation, finally salvation. Let's wrap this up. Let's look at verses one and two in chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my fruitful. Again, that's a shorthand for the whole universe. So 93 trillion light years across, God says, my throne, my footstool. You know what a footstool is, right? It's probably one of the small, smaller items in your, in, in your house. That's how big God is. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, even if you can make the most magnificent church building, at the end of the day, I made them all. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. To put it in today's language, this is the kind of person to whom my heart is attracted. Very simple. He who is humble and contrite, that is broken in spirit, and trembles at my word, or in other words, take my word seriously. These verses invites us to fix our eyes on God's greatness. The solution is not how I can tremble, but look at God, the creator, the judge, the redeemer. In fact, uh, the next slide, verses 22 and 23, it says, For as the heaven and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. We're going to sing these songs very soon, glorious and mighty. But friends, the application is pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you feel proud, if you feel that I'm not humble, God says, come to me, come to my son. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And that's what it means to be part of God's new creation. So finally, I'm just going to repeat the slide that I showed earlier. What is the end of history? Is there life after that? Yes, actually, there's life after there's real eternal life after that. What is going to do, sorry, what God is going to do in the future when Christ returns, he's going to finalize his work of transformation, separation, and salvation. Which future are you living for? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 